It is fascinating when you look at a story like the raising from the dead of Lazarus to look at it from a number of different angles, from the characters and people that make up the story. I'll mention a few of the characters at this point, and I want to focus on one of the particular groups in the story as we read through in John chapter 11 of this the greatest of all miracles that Jesus did. It's his last great miracle before the cross, and he will he will announce to us that he is beyond even the scope of death itself, that he is greater than that. Uh, the characters of the story of the raising of Lazarus are, of course, Lazarus himself, who died, um, who was sick for a good time, Jesus choosing not to come, and Lazarus breathed his last and was placed in a tomb. He is dead, and there's nothing that he can do himself about this. It's the perfect picture of a lost sinner. All of us, before we come to Christ, are dead in our sins. There's nothing that a man can do to get to God on his own. The reason you sit here today, if you believe in God and have received Christ, is because God awoke you from the dead and gave you light in order to believe on. Always never forget that. It'll help with any pride, spiritual pride issues to know that you did nothing to get where you're at. Nothing. Neither from this point on can you do anything to advance your Christian life. That's a blow to the pride also. But here's Lazarus, he's dead. We have Mary, who is one of the two sisters of Lazarus. We know from the gospel accounts in Luke that Mary was of a different chord than her sister Martha. Mary was more reflective and quiet. And any time you see Mary, we'll see her this morning, she's at the feet of Jesus, worshiping, being quiet. Martha, on the other hand, is busy. Martha is always, what can I do? What meal can I fix? How can I fix this situation? She is of the mind of, I'm going to get out of this hole I'm in by doing things. So you have Mary, you have Martha. You also have the townspeople from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is one mile and three quarters from Bethany. And there's a group that comes to mourn with Mary and Martha. There's something about the grieving process that it's good to have people around many times to share the grief with. This is a very commendable group because they not only come, they stay. It is going to be four days when Jesus shows up and the mourners are still there. They haven't gone home. They will be rewarded for their blessing, Mary and Martha, by seeing this resurrection of Lazarus. Of course, you have Jesus himself, who is in total charge of the situation, orchestrating it from A to Z. And God always does that. He is the great orchestrator. Behind the scenes, when you don't think he's working, he's working. His inactivity is his activity. When he moves, he moves. And when he doesn't, he's still moving. 
Jesus is never caught off guard by tragedy. Never. He knew about it long before and is ready for it. But the, the next group I want to talk to you about is a group we don't hear much about in the story, and it's the disciples themselves. Isn't it interesting? The men that had been with him for three years all of a sudden are very quiet. Even Peter, big mouth Peter, has nothing to say at this point. The only one who has spoken so far is Thomas, who is the original Debbie Downer. Long before there was Debbie Downer, there was Doubting Thomas. And Thomas raises his hand and says, let's just go die with him. They are returning from beyond the Transjordan back into Judea, which is the site of weeks before, perhaps months before, of a very close call when Jesus was almost stoned to death. And if you're following a man who's going to be stoned, you're probably going to be stoned also. So you have these men, quiet, in the background, saying nothing, doing nothing. Listen to me very carefully. That's exactly where Jesus wants them. The greatest place for a disciple is with our mouths shut, following, listening, watching the dead get raised. You either take initiative in your Christian life or you simply follow. You cannot do both. Do you know that? You either in 2015 will make a bunch of choices in initiative to develop your prayer life, to read your Bible, to commit yourself to living the Christian life. Whatever list you want to put down there of things that you will do to make it all happen. And in doing so, you are not following anymore. You are leading. The crazy thing about following is that you're following. You're not doing anything. You're watching him. You're listening for him. When he moves, you move. When he stays, you stay. When he's quiet, you're quiet. When he speaks, you speak. If you're taking initiative as a Christian, you are not following. Now, That particular position is greatly criticized in the Christian realm. If you're simply going to follow Jesus Christ, you will be criticized as those who do nothing and abuse grace and are simply along for the ride. You will be told you are spiritually lazy. You're part of the do-nothing crowd, the done crowd. The grace abusers. But I find this group of disciples being very quiet and watching. Listen to me. We deal with dead people all the time. I preach to dead people all the time. Some of you are dead. Most of you who are alive. But some of you hearing the voice, my voice, are spiritually dead. 
you have never come to Christ. What confidence would I have that you will ever come alive? The only confidence I have is Jesus is here and he can wake you up. These men needed to see a dead man come back to life because they needed to know in their ministry that only God can raise the dead. There's no pressure on the preacher. There's no pressure on you. Okay, I've rambled on a bit. Look at John chapter 11. John chapter 11, as these silent, quiet, perhaps a bit scared disciples kind of watch this thing unfold. Verse 17. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had been in the grave in the tomb four days. There's a reason that's mentioned. This is the only time, this is the only time in all of Scripture that a man that was dead four days rose from the dead. It was a common Jewish teaching of the day. The rabbis taught it. That for the first three days after a man died, his spirit hovered over the tomb, waiting, looking for signs of life in the body. But on day four, this is just a teaching of the day, on day four, the spirit, seeing no life in the body, took off. Scripture and John wants us to know that this man was really dead. No hope of his being rose from the dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, it was about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Now when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. I find it fascinating that no one went with her. When Mary got up, the whole group went. Not Martha. Not Martha. Martha gets up and leaves the house, and everybody, all the mourners stay. Mary's going to get up, and they all just take off. Why is that? Well, the mourners knew Mary. They knew she was an active woman that needed to do things. Perhaps visibly, visibly she wasn't taking this quite as hard, and so their hearts weren't drawn to Martha like they were Mary. Let me say a word about that. People grieve in different ways. People uh, face tragedy with different... Don't judge other people for how they cry or don't cry. Don't judge other people for what they do during times of mourning and don't do. Everyone's different. It's okay. The only thing really wrong to do with people is tell them how to feel. The only thing, some of the hardest, coarsest, terrible, most horrible things are said to dear people who are suffering in tragedy. It's best not to say a whole lot, really. Really, it's best just to be really quiet around them. It really is. Well, I say, I don't know what to say. Don't say anything. Don't say a thing. Don't tell them how to feel. Don't tell them how to respond. I'll be so quick as to say, don't, don't be so fast to give them a bunch of verses. No. There's times to share the encouragement of the Lord, but when someone's heartbroken, they just want to know you're going to hang there with them. That's about it. And however they respond, that's good. That's okay. Amen. All right, so we got two different sisters here. So Martha says to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. There is absolutely no way of telling what she meant by that. You'd have to be there to see the inflection in her voice. We were not there. We will not 
jump into thinking, well, this was a harsh criticism of Jesus. This was a complaint. This was, we don't know. This is one of those lines you have to hear it said to know how it is. So all we know is what she said. And then she says this, but even now I know, even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give it to you. Well, there's a bit of a statement of faith, is there not? Whether she was asking God through Jesus to raise her brother or not, maybe she didn't know what she was asking. All she knew at that time was, I know that whatever you ask from God, he's going to do it. Well, look what Jesus says in verse 23. Your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. She took it as we would take it. Look at what she says. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that. She took it like we would take it. Like, this is your comfort, that in the last day, the great day of the Lord, he will rise and we will be back together. Now, that's a bit of comfort in that. But your brother's still dead in the tomb, and there's still heartache. So look at what he says. This is the great statement. He makes it to Martha. He said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Two things completely separate. I am he who raises the dead. And when I raise the dead, I am the giver of life that they will die no more. Do you understand that? He's not saying two different, the same thing in two different ways. He said, I am he who raises, I am he who saves people, spiritually raising them from the dead. I am he who raises the dead themselves, physically. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever, whosoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We get along pretty well in life until tragedy strikes. We get along pretty well until heartache comes. And then the only words, listen to me, the only words that matter are the words of Jesus Christ. And he says this to you today. He says to you, not that I was the resurrection, not that I will be. I am the present reality of life and the resurrection from the dead. Whosoever believes, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes, notice, in me. You ever catch that? How many times Jesus said, me? He said, come unto me. Do you believe in me? Not in a plan of salvation. Not in a set of doctrines. This is very personal. This is a moral decision of faith to believe in Christ. And then notice he says, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
I remember reading that as a teenager before I was saved and thinking, you know, I saw my grandmother in the casket. And people die all the time. What in the world is he talking about? It really perplexed me as a young man. It kind of told me that maybe death isn't what we think it is. That maybe the great reality of death itself, that we think is so great, that there's a greater reality than that. Which brings death down to a level of what it wasn't before he said these words. And then he looks at Martha, and he looks at me, and he looks at you. And he's not asking this from a crowd. He's telling you personally, one-on-one, do you believe this? Well, do you? Do you? Before you answer so quick, because we're in a religious setting with religious people, pull apart all the, the, the layers of stuff. Get down to the heart of your hearts. Do you really hang your hat on this? Do you believe this? Because everything in your life can be taken away. Everything in a heartbeat. But he cannot be taken away from you. He is resurrection and he is life. Take the worst thing you can face, which is death itself or the death of our loved ones, He is greater than that. He is more powerful than that. He is the resurrection. He is the life. And from Him flows life itself. The question isn't whether you hang that within a bunch of your doctrinal beliefs. The question is, how personal is that to you? In the middle of the night when it's all suffering and hurting and painting and none of that's going away, is He the great reality that lifts you beyond the sphere of this life? Is He the bread? Is He the water of your life? Is He everything to you? Is He your resurrection in your life? If you have that, if you possess that, if you grab onto that, and you watch what He does in people's lives, You will have no more confidence in you. You'll have no more confidence in anybody else. You will take no initiative. You will just sit at his feet waiting for his life to move. It's a great place to be. There is no psychology in this. There is no mental gymnastics that will pull you out of grieving and heartache and tragedy and pain. There's none of that. There's the end of you and the beginning of him, and that's it. Do you believe that? Notice Martha's response. She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. That's a great response, but that's not what she asked. That's a great response, but if you'll notice, it's not what she It's not what he asked her. She did the best she could, which was pretty good. She recognized him as the Messiah. I want to suggest to you she had some limits on that, though. Because you still have a dead brother in the tomb, and you have the Messiah who said, your brother's going, I am the resurrection. Listen to me. We can keep religion 
at arm's length. We could keep Christ at arm's length. We can keep all that Christianity stuff on the shelf on a book and just, you know, that's just great. Just kind of pluck it off when you need it and put it back and pull into the spiritual gas station and gas up and just do all that crazy stuff. Well, when he becomes your all in all and your daily possession and he becomes your resurrection life, you don't, you, you're not waiting for some big spiritual revival to take place. You're not waiting for some great experience. You don't need fluff and you don't need experiences and you don't need some church service to zing you and some song service to fly off the handle. You don't need any of that stuff. You have the presence of the reality of the person of Jesus Christ and that is by faith and that's real and that's more real to you and nobody can take that away from you. Nobody. No one can discourage you because he is your great life and discouragement. You're not waiting on men around you or anybody around you to pull anything off. He is your life. He's your everything. Verse 28 says, And when she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, uh, saying in private, went and whispered in her ear in the house, The teacher is here and is calling for you. Now when she heard it, she rose quickly and went with him. Now Jesus, when he had yet had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. This was not a show for Jesus. He wasn't going to, you know, I don't see the disciples saying, let's, let's put up a tent, let's, you know, let's, let's bring in, let's make announcements. Before you do this big thing, let's really, let's run this thing. There's no commercialism in Christ. There's no commercialism in Christianity. There's no big show with the tents and the billboards. There's nothing like that. There's a man that was dead that Jesus is going to raise to life. He's got, he's got there who he wants to be there. I don't know about you, but if I was going to do something like this, I'd have had all of Jerusalem. I'd have had a front row seat for all the scribes and Pharisees down in Jerusalem. You know what I mean? I'd have made this a big show. It's not about a show. It's about a dead man that he's going to raise to life. So Mary goes to him, notice. Uh, when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. They wanted to be with her. Good for them. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. I always find Mary at the feet of Jesus. You just do. There's no better place to be, by the way. We fall down in front of everybody's feet except Jesus. Just fall at his feet. Just spend some time there. He can do things for you. He can give you life and hope and grace that you'll find in no one else. There won't be a book that helps you with that. There's no amount of prayer. This is just falling at Fiji and just being at his feet. It's healing there. You, 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 you won't be able to explain it either. You, you won't be able to give it away to somebody else. It's just yours. Notice what he says. Well, she says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. Apparently, these two sisters have been talking about this for a couple days. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, notice it says he was deeply moved in his spirit. The Greek has the idea of being angry. He was indignant. What was he angry about? He was angry at sin. 
He was angry at the effects of the fall of those that he loved so much. He was angry that we would have to go through this kind of suffering and heartache and pain. He hates sin. It was the fall of Adam that brought death. And he was angry. He was angry because he loves us so much. In fact, he was so angry here, it said he was deeply moved. It said he literally shook with the anger. He shook with that anger. What a a scene of the emotion and pathos of Jesus Christ. Feeling. Notice he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. It means to literally shake with anger. Let me pause and say that here is God feeling the pain of mankind. You need to know that. You need to know that in your worst, horrible, terrible moments, he feels that with you. He shares the suffering. He is not a high priest who cannot be touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. Here you find a gospel where, where Jesus is proclaimed as God and yet he, he feels the emotion of mankind. Verse 34, where have they laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 is the shortest verse in the Bible. It says, Jesus wept. Literally, the Greek is, who burst into tears. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of being so welled up with emotion that tears burst out of you. I have. This isn't a slow cry. This is a sudden explosion of emotion where he's crying for you. He's crying for them. Who do we have to give you? other than Jesus Christ. Who do we have but him? 